Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Remember when that giant turtle showed up by the Chicago River? We lost our minds. She showed up on merch and inspired endless headlines. Well, there's something about animals that inspire us with glimpses into the world beyond our day-to-day lives. And in 2023, we saw many of these stories, from a family of foxes living at Millennium Park to lion cubs being born at Lincoln Park Zoo, and even a giant semi-aquatic dinosaur. Now, on the flip side, some animals can instill fear or disgust. Rats, I'm looking at you. We'll get to those stories, too. So to help us revisit the Animal News of the Year, we sat down with Seth Magley, director of the Urban Wildlife Institute at Lincoln Park Zoo, and Dave Bernier, general curator at the zoo. And I started off by asking Seth about the variety of wildlife that call this city home. I don't even think we know how many wildlife species are here, but what we know is that Chicago is an amazing hub for biodiversity, especially compared to other cities our size. We're on this migratory flyway along Lake Michigan. We have incredible green space conserved around the city, and we're really looked to by other cities to get a sense of how to live with all these other species and how they can enrich and improve our lives. And so it's just a it's a great place to be and to, and to study these different animals that share space with us. So much happening here. Um, I've been so pleasantly surprised in the three years that I've lived in the area of just all the different things that have that have popped up and and we'll get to all of them trust me Uh, it was a fun year this year in wildlife news there was one I think that really stole the hearts of many of us I'm talking about Chonkasaurus Dave you remember when you heard those uh, those headlines yes (laughs) what was it about her that you think captured our fascination probably the visuals at first you know, just seeing this massive turtle. So big. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. I mean, th- and that's what they look like, right? I mean, if you've worked around them before, but just kind of seeing them out and about uh, and visualized uh, lets people know that they're like, you know, these massive animals and they have this just incredible look to them. I had no idea they could get so big. Yeah. I think it's not the kind of animal we think of in the city, right? We think of squirrels and pigeons. We don't think of this enormous dinosaur looking no. turtle. It just, it seems like it <laughs> belongs somewhere looking. else. But when we create these nature spaces in the city, those are the kind of encounters that we can have. Yeah. Many of us don't think much about the species living under the surface when we look at the river, right? So seeing, you know, Chonkasaurus just chilling, sunning on the rocks. <laughs> that was that was shocking. Uh, why do you think that there is such a disconnect from the wildlife around us? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that we've had this this barrier in our minds between what nature is. And we think of it as something that exists somewhere else, right? Something that's far away that we're going to see on TV, um, that we'll get a glimpse of when we go camping, not something that's all around us. But meanwhile, all of these other animals are finding a way to make a living where we live. And they're finding things to really enjoy about these cities that we create. And I think those those barriers are starting to come down. We're starting to realize that no matter where you live, you live in a form of nature. Yeah, well, let's listen to one of my favorite pieces of of tape. This is uh, two of the botanists and nature enthusiasts who actually first spotted her. Oh my God, that's a massive turtle. Is that a snapper? He's a snapper. That's a a Chicago River snapper. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it makes me chuckle every time. Uh, You know, one of the things too, I think, Seth, that was pretty remarkable was um, 
Chunkosaurus really came to symbolize the river's health, right? Because we we saw that the ecosystem was actually able to support this huge snapping turtle. And it, I think, shows how far we've come from the river's polluted past. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's not unfair to say that Chicago River has been thought of as kind of a joke for years, right? I mean, it's just been thought of as this polluted cesspool that nothing could live in. Uh, but really, a lot of organizations have put in a lot of really good work to clean up that river. And now, you know, it's not just Chonkosaurus. People are seeing otters in the river. It's amazing to me, really, how quickly these urban spaces can wow. bounce back if we just put in a little bit of elbow grease in the work to really make them into nature spaces. Why have we not heard about this before? Otters in the river? Yeah, there are people having sightings. I have not, unfortunately, personally seen otters in the river, but people are seeing them. They're they're coming back and all different kinds of fish species and, and other things. So it, it's really remarkable how quickly these systems can turn around. Have you seen them, Dave? I've not seen them, but I've heard uh, <laughs> kayakers reporting them. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, as we were talking a moment ago about some conservation efforts with uh, the turtle there, we know Chicago is also an important flight path when it comes to uh, migratory birds. And, and earlier this year, we talked with Judy Pollack, who's president of the Chicago Bird Alliance, about the piping pulver chicks that were brought here from uh, New York to nest at Montrose Beach. Let's listen. I'm so delighted that... Um, the plovers are nesting at Montrose Beach because it, it really um, it sort of consecrates the yeah. park district's wonderful efforts to to create natural beach uh, there. You know, and I, yeah. of course, remember when it was just a big, flat, groomed, um, sandy beach. And they've done a ton to make it make it natural. And a lot of people think that it would be hard for a city to play a role in bird conservation. But Chicago really plays a big role. You've been part of past rescue efforts too, right, Dave? Yeah, we did. We were involved in uh, 2021 where there was an egg that was abandoned and we uh, took it in and hatched it. And then it was then ultimately back re-released onto the beach with the other uh, chicks. So we You took it in from where? I mean, tell us more. From Montrose Harbor. So oh. there was an egg that was, uh, all eggs had hatched, was four. And then there was one that uh, hatched was later. And usually that's because the eggs are laid in series. And so the last egg to hatch, you know, you know, the last one would be late is the last one to hatch. So we took it in and we incubated till it hatched. And then we then we gave it back to the um, Illinois Department of Natural Resources where they brought it back to the beach and reintroduced it back to the family. Wow. What what does a freshly hatched uh, plover look like? They look very similar. I mean, they're altricial birds. So they're not like, uh, so they're ready to go at birth, right? So they okay. come up. Once they get fluffy, they dry out. They they can walk around. They feed themselves. They don't rely on their parents to feed them. They so um, so putting them back out into that space with other uh, chicks of the same age mm-hmm. um, is pretty common. You can do that, and there's a little lot less work that we have to do if we had to like try to hand rear something like that. Yeah, tell us more about how the Lincoln Park Zoo cares for the for these birds. So we really don't do much. We're kind of on standby with the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. We know that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Chicago Park District have been working in, as a team for many years now uh, on plovers in uh, the Chicagoland area, and so we're there as a resource for them. Uh, sometimes we can hold a chick or an injured bird or eggs um, for transport somewhere else. We also have uh, animal keepers that have gone up to uh, Pelston, Michigan, and it help and help with uh, uh, kind of a captive breeding and a release program for piping plovers there. Okay. Uh, we've been doing that for probably the better part of 15 years. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. There was uh, one early Saturday morning in July when uh, my family and I were at Montrose Beach, and then uh, we were stopped. We were sort of walking toward the, the shore, and we were stopped by a couple of bird monitors who sort of rerouted us because they were trying to protect 
the the plovers at the time, and uh, we happily followed their instructions. <laughs> uh, what what are some ways in in general, Seth, for the folks listening, uh, that we can be more mindful uh, of the animals around us? Yeah, actually, something the zoo is doing now up there is we've come to understand through work with our partners that the biggest threat to these birds is off-leash dogs. And we're surveying a lot of people to try to understand why is it that you you need to let your dog roam off-leash, what could be done to sort of help convince you to keep your dog on a leash. Um, so really, as in many cases when we work in the city, wildlife management is people management, right? So we're trying to understand how can we get the community to work more with us to help protect these birds. Yeah, wildlife management is people management. Good way to phrase it. So I'm a Leo. I also have this mild obsession with lions ever since I was a child. I don't know what the two have to do with each other, but I like to say that. Uh, So one of my favorite 2023 stories, of course, happened way at the beginning of the year, and that was when three lion cubs were born in January, Dave. What can you tell us about these cubs? It was a very exciting time. Uh, What I can tell you right now is that they're growing still like weeds. They're so cute. They're massive guys. Um, They're probably about 180 pounds now, and they were born probably about four pounds. So I remember the video footage. And they're... (laughs) ridiculously cute yeah right? so uh, cute yes but there's they're equally cute now just in a different way it's kind of like watching rough and tumble boys play that's that's <laughs> what you get to see when you come out to this they're place. almost a year old now right yes what yeah. are their personalities like they're pretty similar um the keepers would be able to define this a little bit better but they're pretty playful and they they like uh peely peely who is uh, our first cub that was born uh the year before in march and uh, so now he's kind of like big brother. I was just going to say, is that their older brother? Yes. And uh, <laughs> so he was carrying around a, an enrichment device yesterday, and uh, they all wanted it from him. And he was he was clearly like, it was like, keep away. Like, this is mine. And they would try to tackle him, and he would just brush them off because they're still, he's about 400 pounds. So, oh, know, wow. So he's a big guy. And they're what, 180, you said? Yeah, about 180. Yeah, that's a, that's a big difference. What are they doing in the cold? Where do they live? They live in the exhibit. So it's a four-season exhibit, even though it's outside. We have built-in uh, uh, floor heaters uh, in about 18 different places around the, the area. We've got a good overhang area that stays dry uh, mm-hmm. from inclement weather. We also have some forced heat areas in the building or in, uh, in some of the rock work. And then we, they always have access to holdings. So they can always have the choice to go into a warm holding. But there are so many spaces um, that they can get to to warm up that you know, they really stay outside almost all the time. So from 180-pound lion cubs to 105-pound zebra foal? Yes. That was born in August? Yes. Uh, born. Um, people remember that really hot stretch we had where it was over 100 degrees. That's, yeah, that was the exact week I decided to take vacation. Good for you. <laughs> uh, that's the same week that Adia decided to give birth to her zebra foal, wow. her fifth one. Wow. How's, how's she doing? She's doing great. They they are uh, inseparable. Uh, they look really great together. Uh, she's really doing well. And uh, she's in the exhibit with her, kind of like it's another female called Delray. So it's a, kind of a group of three females right now on exhibit. But she's growing really well. And the keepers have started trying to work in a, a bit of a training program with her, getting her used to interacting with the animal keepers so that as she gets older, we'll be able to uh, initiate some kind of training with her too. In other mammal news, Seth, I want to talk about the family of foxes at Millennium Park this summer, including adorable babies or kits. Uh, so the Urban Wildlife Institute helps staff at the park to create an area for, for the foxes to roam. So what else can you tell us about those efforts? Yeah, I was really excited to see them because actually across our region, we're seeing that foxes are on the decline. We see fewer foxes every year, and then this family popped up in really the most urban part of our city in Millennium mm-hmm. Park, and the community really seemed excited about it, really rallied around these these foxes. So that was really exciting to see. We were using camera traps to kind of monitor them, um, and then they 
sort of just disappeared. So likely moved on to another habitat. You know, we sort of had some doubts that that space was going to be large enough for them in the long term. How long did they stay, roughly? I think they were there for maybe three weeks, maybe it was a month, something like that, before we really stopped seeing much of them and haven't heard any real reports of them, which is, I think, good news. If we had heard that, you know, they were found dead or something, that would be very sad, but really got no reports at all. So I'm I'm choosing at least to believe that they have found other habitat elsewhere. No news is good news. The nice thing about being so close to the the lake there, and of course, with our lakefront being conserved as green spaces, they can migrate, you know, north and south along the lakefront trail. Uh, But it was really fun to see them in such an urban area. And it really reminds us that these species that we don't necessarily think of as cities dwellers can adapt and yeah. can find a way to make use of these. Well, while spaces. they were here, I remember one of the things that was um, really stressed to the public was don't feed the foxes. Yeah, and that's very important. We know that anytime you start hand feeding these mammals, it never ends well. They come to associate people in food. Sometimes they can start to attack people. And so, yes, I would definitely like to uh, reemphasize that messaging. Do not feed the foxes. If you have coyotes in your neighborhood, do not feed them. Do not feed the raccoons. Just don't do it. Yeah. Well, another animal that uh, really took a lot of the limelight this year, that's the 46-foot-long semi-aquatic dinosaur called Spinosaurus. We talked with Jingmei O'Connor, who's a paleontologist and associate curator of fossil reptiles at the Field Museum. Here's a little bit of her describing some of the defining features of this dino. It has this sail on its back. It's the only dinosaur with a sail, kind of like this animal dimetrodon that oh. like a lot of people are familiar with, that is actually more closely related to humans than to dinosaurs. But anyways, oh. I digress. But these spines that form the sail are over six feet tall. And it has these jaws that look more like a crocodile. So oh it's my just goodness. yeah, things we've never be seen before in a dinosaur. What a description. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have either of you seen a picture? I, I think or I did seen see it a in picture. person. <laughs> I'm old, but I'm not quite that old. Um, Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just what a great place to live. I love Chicago so much. And, you know, we have this amazing urban wildlife, as I spoke about. But, of course, at the Field Museum, they have an amazing collection. Uh, The collection of animals we have at Lincoln Park Zoo are really world class. It's Mm -hmm. just it just reminds me what a cool place this is. Here's a little bit more of Jingmei describing uh, the importance of unveiling the cast of this creature at the Field Museum. Our cast is the only cast in the world that has this newly found material. So it is the most complete and most scientific, oh. scientifically accurate Spinosaurus cast in the world. It's also only the second cast in existence. So well, it, it is something really special. What do you make of a Chicago institution, Dave, having such an addition to their collection? Oh, it's incredible. I'm, I'm a huge fan of all the museums that we have here. I've been members and visited with my kids so many times. I just love them. And it's so nice to see them uh, add something that's special, that's local to the area. We're continuing our conversation about animal news in 2023 with Seth Magley and Dave Bernier of Lincoln Park Zoo. We're moving on from animals that are cute and cuddly to some that can get a bad rap, like bats. And I asked Seth if an influx in calls this fall to Chicago Animal Care and Control reporting bat sightings meant that there were more bats in the area than usual. Here's Seth. People are just maybe noticing them a little bit more and becoming more interested in what's going on. I mean, what was so different this year that they popped out? And yeah, wanted to be a, seen. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not <laughs> totally sure. We had a we had a fall that kind of stretched on and was warm for kind of a longer period of time. That may have been part of it because, you know, most of our bats kind of take off in the winter and, and go elsewhere. Um, so it may have been that we were just kind of seeing them a little later in the year. Maybe there was a large influx of the insects that they like to eat. That's possible. Um, but the true answer is I'm not sure. But I like seeing them because I'm a big fan of the bats. Why are you such a big fan? Well, the bats and why are... were you trying to, during the break, make me a big fan? <laughs> because <laughs> well, in full transparency... 
I'm not such a big fan of the of the bats. I'll turn you around eventually. Um, bats are just amazingly good for our environment. They eat all of these insects, many of which are pests that kind of bother us. They don't harm us really in any way. Um, some of them really are uh, of concern from a conservation standpoint. We're losing some of our species of bats, and we know how important they are. We want to help protect them. Some of them are affected by diseases that we want to try to protect them from if we can. Uh, but they're just a really integral part of the ecosystem. And also, I think another example of a species that people don't think of as city dwellers, but which do very well in our city much of the time. Mm. Well, big and little brown bats are the ones that were uh, common here in the Chicago area. And we talked about it with your Lincoln Park Zoo colleague, Liz Lehrer, earlier this year. Here's a little bit of uh, Liza, rather. Here's a little bit of her uh, describing her favorite bat. I like the hoary bat because they're very pretty. They have multiple colors. They have gray and kind of black and golden highlights. Um, They're also the largest bat in our area. So we do have um, about eight bats in the Chicago area. People might be surprised to learn that. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're a large bat. They flow slowly. Um, They make these low kind of long calls. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just like their kind of relaxed demeanor. So right after she said that, I immediately Googled the the hoary bat, and no, I still wasn't impressed. Well, I, I'm going to put in a pitch for the silver-haired bat. I think ah. they are quite cute. We have them in the region as well. Maybe put in a, a search for that, but uh, maybe Liza and I can't turn you around. But, um, but at least <laughs> oh, hopefully Let me look I can... up the silver-haired right, bat, and yeah, I'll get give back it a to look. you. Are you going to at least rank them? Say which one you like better. <laughs> which one I like better. Uh, well, she mentioned there in that clip, eight bats are common here. Two are migratory, uh, the silver-haired bats, of course, and uh, red bats. Just remind us of their mig- uh, their migration patterns, Seth. Yeah, so I think the different species sort of have different patterns of migration and how far they may go, and some just sort of find a cave not too far away. Uh, but typically, you know, in the winter, this, this area is going to be a little cold for most of our eight species of bats. So they're going to be making their way south. Yeah, uh, I mean... I kid, sort of, but bats can actually alarm some folks, right? And by people, you know, I mean me. Uh, Liza was saying, just as you are, there really is no cause for, for concern. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, our bats are not blood drinkers. They're not They're not looking to drink your blood. Um, they're all insect eaters. So they're not interested in me at all. They're really not. Okay. And the, the only reason, but that said, you don't want to pick up a bat that you might find on the ground because that does happen because they do sometimes carry diseases. That can happen. Um, so you want to give them a, a safe distance, but there's really no reason to be concerned. You're a curator at the zoo, Dave. I mean, how, how do you go about educating folks on just that, right, about animals that might scare them what's your strategy there sure when we have several species like that at the zoo we've got you know snakes or spiders or bats um that we that we work with and so we have some of these are they're helpful but people are like ah no right i think a lot of that is kind of mythology like they hear stories and they they generalize uh uh, uh, an animal's being yeah like i have a scary cartoon sketch of a bat (laughs) like you know with fangs out and i think that's what is in my head my head yes and then same thing with like spiders i know that i'm not a huge spider fan i've worked with many of them but i'm um but that's it's uh it's something that you know like the, we call them kind of misunderstood animals that people they kind of have this fear about but they don't really know much about them so if they were people would take a little bit of time to just research them a little bit a little bit of their natural history a little bit of what their life is like mm-hmm. and it kind of it turns them into away from the myth and more of an back to an animal right and that they have a job to do and that they live their lives and i think it helps a little bit understand that they have a place here and we can live with them yeah the silver-haired bat i mean is it is is it rare here or 
I think it's not super common. It's not like the Indiana bat, which is an endangered species that we oh. think we might occasionally see here. So it's not rare on that level. Like you said, our most common are the little brown and the big brown. But, um, you know, I think the silverheads are kind of like the eastern reds and the evening bats where we see them, you know, infrequently. Yeah. Well, I, I want to switch gears and touch on a very sad event here as we... we run through what's been happening with animals this year. Uh, We know that migratory birds, they die as they make their way through Chicago each year uh, because uh, oftentimes they're disoriented by lights and buildings. Earlier this fall, though, if you recall, 1,000 died in one single day. I mean, do you remember hearing that, Dave? Yes, I remember seeing the pictures. Yeah, what was your reaction to that? Uh, it's It's been a reality. If you've lived here for a long time, you know that this happens every year during the two sets of migration times. And, you know, what, what the zoo tries to do is tries to mitigate that by following the same, you know, instructions that they were given by um, by Chicago and Cook County as far as, like, lights and buildings. Uh, we try to use uh, dots on windows in order to break up the pattern of the window so the birds can see them as a solid object as opposed to being clear. And so, you know, we still have windows at the zoo that were changing over into this bird-friendly oh, um, really? dot matrix. Or for our Pepper Family Wildlife Center, we had windows that had permanently etched dots in them so mm-hmm. that, you know, because people like to pick the dots off of our windows. So this way they're permanently on there. So oh, you need some signage or something to tell people. Yeah. Don't well, touch the windows. If you tell them not to touch the windows. They'll they, touch they, the they, windows. More. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a little bit of psychology there. But, you know, we know it's it's been around for a really long time. And I think part of that, the strategy is to try to get people to you know, things local with their own buildings, you know, um, whether it's downtown with a, a big like a property management building or your own house is what can you do to minimize the risk to birds as a especially when they're flying through. Yeah. I mean, as you talk about how common it is and, and that it happens every year, I mean, something about 1000 in a day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's striking. Yeah, it was a it was a really big, scary incident, and it put me in mind of something similar happened some years back when they opened the Apple Building right in the river, this big glass building. There were a lot of bird strike incidents. So we know we know what it is that we can do, as Dave just pointed out. We know pretty simple things we can do to not just build these big, big sheets of, of clear glass, especially don't put plants behind them, to try to make it more hospitable for birds, to try to prevent these kinds of, of incidents. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that we need the science to know what to do. It's that we need to implement um, those recommendations into into our building codes and, and really into the culture of building the city. I think it, it leads into a deeper question, which is animals should have a seat at the table when we think about how to build stuff. We should think about what will the effect be on the mammals and on the birds. The same way we think about power or we think about water, we should think about animals. And um, I think we're trying to be part of a dialogue to move that discussion forward. Yeah. Are you are pleased with, I guess, the progress that the city's making with, with some of these uh, ordinances that have been put in place so far to try to help reduce these deaths? Yeah, my understanding is we have a bird safe building ordinance that has passed, but it's not really been implemented into code. And and I hope something positive can come out of this this incident that you're describing, which is that we can really uh, facilitate the process of getting that integrated into our building codes, really get big differences made on the ground so that we, we stop creating structures that, that do this much harm. And now we got to talk about rats. Do you we? knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> we got to do it. Because this city, I don't know why, we, we try to top every list, and this is not one I think we should, <laughs> we should be trying to top, but we continue to be named the rattiest city in the country. You're okay. both shaking your heads. Well, <laughs> I, I, we haven't actually quite finished crunching the numbers yet, so I shouldn't say this out loud on the radio, Seth, but I, we're believe, win I believe in the next year we will be able to publish work to prove that we are not the rattiest city in America. Who do you think is the rattiest city? Oh, we're going to throw shade now? Yes. <laughs> I think it's got to be New York City. Ah, yeah, this is the place. Throw the shade. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you agree, Dave? 
I'm going to say yes, only because <laughs> I'm not sure too many Chicago rats have gone viral with like carrying pizzas around or smoking <laughs> oh, cigarettes right. or whatever else they've been doing out in New York. That is so. I was really shocked that that Chicago was uh, was topping the list. I, I mean, I've been here now for uh, just under three years, and I only recently saw my first Chicago rat two months ago. Isn't that crazy? Made an impression though, didn't it? Uh, it scared the daylights out of me. I did run stupidly right I, I did run but i mean have either of you had close calls with rats oh yeah well i jog in the early mornings and i've had them run almost but not quite over my shoe like <laughs> right in front of me and and yes i mean so we Do may not scream? be the, i I'm, I'm a wildlife biologist they would take oh, my yeah. card away if i screamed so i instead i make sort of a sort of an undignified sort of a squeak um <laughs> Yes, it's never oh, fun. There's a difference between exactly, a exactly. Scream and it's a an squeak. important, important <laughs> distinction to be made there. Um, so I, I don't think we're the rattiest city, but we certainly have a, a large and robust rat population. And uh, so we have run the Chicago Rat Project for the last five years, trying to understand what communities suffer the most from rats. What can we do to sort of help uh, help the city to really manage these rats? How can we reduce their numbers? And how can we create the kind of city that doesn't attract rats? Because, of course, just going out and trapping a bunch of rats doesn't solve the problem if our city is just great rat habitat, which when we throw a bunch of trash out, it is. So it's really, it's about garbage management. It's about making sure they can't get into building structures. Um, it's about trying to see the city from a rat's perspective mm-hmm. and then build a city that doesn't look so good to them. I mean, the fact that we have a rat czar, that was, <laughs> <laughs> that, was that was pretty interesting to me. I mean, have you had close encounters, Dave, with, with rats? Oh, sure. I've worked. We want to hear your rat stories. Yeah, I've lived and worked in the city for a really long time, and, and I don't have, I don't think I've ever in- Countered them in a way that bothered me, but I've certainly seen a lot of them. Uh, we, you know, being in the city, you know, uh, the zoo has a full-time person that just deals with pest control for us. And, of course, we're a zoo, so we feed our animals, so we also mm-hmm. have attractants, too. So uh, so we're always on the lookout for rats and trying to mitigate their, same thing what Seth was saying, mitigate places for them to nest, uh, mitigating food sources for them, you know, and that's the best way to, to keep the rat population down, at least at the zoo. I mean, and, and you've got the ears of a, a lot of people right now. But how can we adjust our habits, you think, um, to just have fewer sightings of these creatures? Yeah, I think garbage management is the easiest thing you can do. If you, you know, happen to notice that, oh, you know, the, the dumpster in my alley's got a big hole in the bottom of it. That's something that you can absolutely call 311 and, and let people know about. If you are seeing a lot of rats in your neighborhood, you should absolutely call 311 and report that. We talk to a lot of people who feel like there's no reason to do that because nothing's going to be done, and that's not true. The, the city is absolutely trying to manage these rats. They're trying really hard, but they need data on where they are, where the outbreaks are happening. So um, if you're seeing a lot of rats, you should definitely report that. And, and yeah, just sort of look around your neighborhood and think about, well, why? if I have a lot of rats, why is that? Is you know, Are my neighbors maybe throwing out a lot of trash? Can I talk to them about that? Can we start a, a conversation around it? Um, I think that's going to be the best path forward. Yeah. Any Anything to add, Dave? No, I think that's, a, that's excellent advice. I mean, we just have, need to take away these opportunities for them to thrive, basically. Exactly. Well, uh, I mean, looking ahead to 2024, what do you guys have your, your eyes on as far as animal stories in the year ahead? Anything exciting you want to give a, a preview to? You first, Dave. Uh, do I? Um, well, you know, we're always in the process of, you know, like we've got breeding recommendations for many of our animals there, but we never really know if they're pregnant or, you know, as they're going forward. So it's hard to promise things. But uh, we did bring in a female rhino, black, eastern black rhino in October. Her name is Lulu, and she's a oh. five-year-old female, and she's going to get a breeding recommendation with our male, Utenzi. And uh, we also have another female there that has a breeding recommendation from the uh, rhino species survival plan. And this is a critically endangered species. I think they're probably around... 
five or six hundred left uh, oh my in the wild. And so we've been really lucky at the zoo. We converted an exhibit about uh, 15 years ago um, with a generous donation from the Harris family. And we were able to make kind of a breeding area for our rhinos. And we've produced two calves in that time, wow, okay. uh, which have both have transferred out of the zoo now and ultimately will enter into the zoo breeding population. And then, you know, we're hoping uh, to have a calf, you know, in the near. I mean, they have a really long gestation. It's like, yeah. you know, 14, 15 months. So it takes a really long time. But uh, our As goal a human, is, I can't even imagine that. <laughs> keep the... Keep the population going. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. Wow. Anything you're looking forward to in 2024, Seth? Yeah. So I think we're going to be learning a lot more about birds, which is going to be very exciting. We have developed some new tools where we can put recorders out uh, in the environment to record bird song, And then we have these really high-tech tools that can split that out and use AI to determine what birds are singing in what place. Wow. So very soon, I'm hopeful that we're going to have a lot more information than we have now about where the birds live, how we can sort of help protect some of our rarer species of birds. Uh, so I'm really excited to see where that work that goes. AI. The AI is it's the everywhere. future. Yeah. We'll leave it there for now. Seth Magley is director of the Urban Wildlife Institute at Lincoln Park Zoo, and Dave Bernier is a general curator. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Linnea Dominic and edited by Dan Tucker and Brenda Ruiz. If you liked this conversation, stay tuned. We'll have a few more year in review conversations this month that you will not want to miss. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you so much for listening. We'll meet again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.